Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. This is our seventh episode, and I appreciate the continuing growth in listenership. Every week we're uh, getting larger, it seems. And uh, this week, I just got back actually from a trip to Duke University where I went to law school and I went there. I go every year for a basketball game and the school seems to just get prettier and shinier every year that I go. Although I did notice this year that the basketball facility, Cameron Indoor Stadium, was a little quieter than what I was used to. It's a little more politically correct. And that's really the way the whole campus has been in terms of like the cheers during the games. There's never anything that's really disrespectful the way it used to be when I was there. The the worst I think that I heard during this game against Syracuse, which Duke drubbed Syracuse, was when the opposing team gets introduced, the crowd will say something like one of the players, let's give you for an example, is Buddy Beheim. That's the coach's son. And from Syracuse, New York, uh, starting point guard, Buddy Beheim, And the crowd screams in unison, hi, buddy, you suck. You know, it's kind of weak and it's tired. When I was at Duke, back the period back then, and we're talking, you know, decades ago, there was viciousness from the fans. I mean, vicious stuff that came from the crowd. I, I know because I was one of them that was screaming it. Uh, I remember that there was a player that came in from the University of Maryland who had been accused of rape. And, you know, th- and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that this was better how we were back then. I mean, you draw your own conclusions. He had been accused of rape. And when he was introduced to the uh, student body, Duke student body and Cameron, the students threw condoms at him. Wrapped condoms. I mean, that, that actually happened. The, the, the motherfucking from the crowd screaming and yelling. I've seen people did back then light pennies with a, with a lighter and, and throw them at people. You know, there was some crazy stuff that happened that I had actually seen back then. But now it's much like everything is on campus. You walk around campus and you'll see tolerance and respect. I mean, like if you have to be reminded to be respectful of people, you know, my guess is that's probably not really going to work. You need to have respect on your own. Uh, Saying it on campus is not going to get anyone to become more respectful. They're just going to be annoyed that they're being lectured to by a sign on campus. So uh, things have really changed. And, you know, I think it's really just a sign of the times, how, how soft we've become as a, as a society. But anyway, with regard to Duke and the reason why I started thinking about talking about Duke was this past week, I had a sentencing for a client of mine, Rashawn Weaver, who was convicted of murdering the freshman at Barnard College, Tessa Majors. And he was sentenced to 14 years to life this past week. And it was a really tough sentencing for me, I, I suppose, emotionally. A very young boy. And, you know, I'm not suggesting for a second that what he did you know, should be discounted or even minimized. I mean, it's horrible. You send your kid to college and she comes home in a bag a few months later. I mean, it's the worst possible nightmare for any parent. And, it's simultaneously, it's also a nightmare for parents to think that their kid that grows up in the city could end up in jail, could do something horrible and end up in jail. But this was sort of an unusual case. First of all, I took it on pro bono. His father came to see me. 
you know, asking for help. And I just heard the tale of, whoa, it just was sad. A 14-year-old kid charged with such a serious crime, and I agreed to take it on for free. They weren't going to be able to pay me what I would normally get for a murder case like this. And I was happy to take it on for free because I felt, again, not that I supported what Rashawn Weaver did, but I felt that a kid like this, so young and without the resources, oftentimes does not necessarily get the best representation. And in this case, he had some you know, wonderful public defenders before me. And I should say that I don't know that my result was such a fantastic result at all. I was deeply disappointed in it. So I don't know that hiring me necessarily made a difference. I don't want to be so bold to suggest that I did make a difference. But what shocked me was just the reaction by society of it, I suppose, the fact that I'm representing this kid. There was seemingly no empathy at all from society about the fact that he was 14 years old. There was no empathy at all about the fact that he grew up in the most horrific of circumstances. And as I said, being 14 years old, when you commit a crime like this, everybody knows, science is clear on this, that your brain is not fully formed. You can't make those intelligent split-second decisions that an adult perhaps can make. So that's why they have lower penalties for juveniles, you know, throughout America and throughout you know, most of the sane world, because they recognize that kids are not as responsible as adults are for their actions. That being said, 14 years to life for a kid who was 14 when he committed the crime is a pretty hefty penalty. I mean, he could theoretically spend, you know, decades in prison. And it just seemed that nobody cared. And I would suggest that based on the emails that I got, and I get some pretty ugly emails pretty much in every case that I have that comes out publicly. And it's never somebody that wants to engage me. It's always some scumbag who just wants to write to me anonymously, either threatening me or excoriating me. And it's astonishing to me that they're screaming, yelling at me, but they're afraid to put their name and, you know, the ability to contact them. You know, I guess it takes a lot of courage to write to somebody from behind their computer screen and not have to worry that someone's even going to call you back or at least write even back to you. But that's, again, this is how society is. We're now in a stage where people are, are very brave behind a computer and not so brave face-to-face. -face. And here's a couple of the emails that I got um, right after the sentencing. Quote, there isn't a, a tree tall enough in the state of New York, much less in this country from which Rashawn Weaver could be hung by his neck. Tell him two things. Okay, I'm definitely going to run to tell him, pal. You know, I appreciate the email. One, I hope his family is okay going forward. Well, that's nice. And he can and will be visited in prison. Well, that's true. He won't be able to be visited during COVID, and he has barely gotten any visits in the past two years, but whatever. He destroyed a family, which he did, and he should suffer the same fate. Fuck him and fuck you for representing him. No. That's a nice, nice commentary. Well, you know, this is America. And the fact that I'm giving someone his constitutional rights in the best way I can and without any desire for any kind of monetary reward, and certainly this is not the kind of publicity I want, you know, where people are threatening, you know, me or screaming at me. Well, anyway, let me get on to the, the second email. So glad that the POS, that means piece of shit for you people out there that don't know acronyms, that you represented pro bono Rashawn Weaver and that he is deeply remorseful for his actions. It must cleanse your white guilt. I have no white guilt, just so you know. If anybody knows me at all, I have zero white guilt. None. Zero. 
It must cleanse your white guilt to offer your legal services to this animal, or is it a combination of that and garnering publicity for you and your firm? It is my Christmas wish that this animal gets his due in prison and you get the same treatment Tessa got. All right. No, that's, I guess that's, I don't know if that's actually a threat. That's a wish. I guess there's a difference between wishes and threats. Anyway, what frustrated me was that you've got the people, obviously that's somebody who's concerned about my white guilt. You've got angry white people that identified with Tessa Major. She was a pretty white girl and Rashawn Weaver was a, a poor black kid and they felt this was a race thing and, you know, a black kid killing a white girl. And that's largely what I think drove the media attention of this case. It's on the front page of the paper. God knows how many times. I don't know, but many, many, many times. And I think that if it was a black girl that had gotten killed by a black boy, this would have been on page 27, maybe after the first day. But this was such a shock to the city. And it was astonishing to me that nobody could really appreciate the fact that it was a white girl that triggered such a response in the media. And when I was with the prosecutor, you know, basically trying to plead for the lowest possible deal that I could get for Rashawn, and the prosecutor was a good man. I mean, I liked him throughout, very solid, very honest, an honorable guy, a hardworking, honorable guy. And although they're my natural enemy prosecutors, I have to tip my hat to somebody who does that kind of public work for decades, which uh, the prosecutor did in the case. So we're lucky to have people like that as in society. We're lucky to have people that are willing to work hard for the public for very little salary, relatively. And when we discussed it, I said to him, you know, the reason why there's such a push in this case is because people just hate him. They hate him because he's black and, and she's white. And shockingly, the prosecutor didn't agree. He said, well, if this was a, a black girl, I think it would have been the same response. And I just looked at him. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said to me, am I being delusional? I said, of course you are. I said, do you know how many black-on-black -black crimes there are that no one ever hears about? Because nobody gives a damn if a black kid kills somebody black. It's sort of like the way with regard to uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. If the Israelis uh, harm a hair on the head of a Hamas member, the entire world is like ripping at their clothes or tearing their clothes off. But, you know, out of, out of you know, in pain. But meanwhile, you know, Muslims are getting slaughtered by the you know, tens of thousands, excuse me, hundreds of thousands in Syria by Muslims. Nobody gives a shit about it. One, as I said, one Palestinian dies in Gaza. People are losing their minds. Thousands and thousands are being gassed and killed in Syria. Palestinians. Nobody cares. The Palestinians don't even care. You know, you see what's going on in China with the, uh, the Uyghurs, the Muslims there. They're, you know, in concentration camps, but nobody cares because, you know, Israel in that case is not the one doing it. It's the Chinese. Anyway, so I was surprised, I suppose, that there was no empathy from liberals even on this issue for Rashan. And I think it was because Rashan, there was nothing positive that could help liberals. You've got a black kid killing a white girl and nobody wanted to go near it on the left. You know, they're more interested in George Floyd. Now, why would they be more interested in George Floyd? He had a, a long rap sheet. Um, he was resisting arrest, supposedly, I suppose. And it depends. You know, he was to some degree when he was killed. And this was a guy who was a, a lifelong criminal. And because they could use that murder 
by the white cop against law enforcement, all of a sudden George Floyd gets elevated to a level, you know, of almost deity. But Rashawn Weaver, who was a kid who had no criminal record up to that point, he was only 14 years old, what kind of criminal record could he have had? He's completely villainized and ignored by the left. And I found that to be really frustrating because they couldn't use him to achieve what they wanted politically. So they just, nobody came to his defense at all. So he was getting abused by the left and the right. And I brought this up during the sentencing. And for some reason, it didn't make any play at all. I was surprised. I thought that it, that it, that it would have was the fact that Alvin Bragg, the new district attorney in Manhattan, you know, if you, he now has new rules in his office in terms of what they prosecute. If you have, if you're a felon, you know, it means a, somebody with a criminal record, a serious criminal record, and you walk into a drugstore and you hold it up with a, a knife, unless you're planning on using that knife, unless you show that you're going to use that knife and put somebody in actual danger, if you just flash it, you're going to get charged with a misdemeanor. And I said, how can it be that somebody with a lengthy prison record, a lengthy criminal record, who's holding a knife and robbing someone is going to get a misdemeanor, and Rashawn Weaver, who you know, who grew up the way he did, and I'll go into that a little bit. You know, why is it that society, you know, is just piling on him, fourteen to life? The other guy's facing up to a year with a misdemeanor. Now, as I said, Rashawn grew up horribly, and this is the reason why I had interest in the case, why I wanted to help him. His own father was raised by a crack addict and a stepfather who was mostly in jail. Rashawn's father himself was arrested the first time at age fourteen, and went to prison. By the time he was 18, he had been in and out of prison, and that's when he met Rashawn's mother. Rashawn's mother was the victim of statutory rape and gave birth to her first child at age 13. Her statutory rapist went to jail. So that's how he was raised. When Rashawn was born, his father was in prison. He grew up in public housing and in homeless shelters and occasionally with relatives. The Administration for Child Services came to visit many times, and Rashawn's mother basically just lied to them and tossed them out. She raised the kids uh, herself, a single parent, did drugs, um, was drunk, I suppose. I don't know. She was doing something and often left the kids by themselves to go out when they were asleep. When they lived with uh, their, his dad, when Rashawn lived with his dad and grandfather, they kept a loaded gun, cocaine, and heroin, and a pit bull within reach of the kids. That's not a great start in life. And, you know, not surprisingly, he was diagnosed with cognitive issues and ADHD when he was younger. And also not surprisingly, when he managed to escape New York City and went upstate during the summers as a fresh air fund kid, he was well-behaved and loved by the family that took him in and, you know, wonder why that is. But Rashawn grew up with absolutely no parental guidance at all, only bad influences. All the, the male relatives he had had all been in jail. All the role models have all been in jail. You know, that can't be easy. That's not a normal life. He had a hard time, his family, keeping electricity on in, in their homes. That was a typical day. So I'm not suggesting any of this excuses what he did because there are plenty of people that overcome these horrible uh, starts in life and, and manage to become successful or at least not killers. But it was just shocking to me that there was just no, no side. No one cared about Rashawn Weaver and 14 years to life 
as if somehow that's going to make him a better person by spending more time in a place with uh, violence around him. And as I was saying to the prosecutor, trying to get a lower deal and suggesting that the only reason anybody is so being so tough, so tough on him, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be tough. There was a murder. A young woman lost her life. It's, it's horrific. But I had other cases with that office not that long ago. One of them was a fellow who was a gang member. This is a few years ago. And apparently a young kid, a 16-year-old kid, is selling CDs on the wrong block. Apparently that's, that's uh, verboten. You can't sell CDs on the wrong block in certain parts of New York City. So my client was charged with telling a 15-year-old, handing him a gun and saying, shoot him. You know, for selling the CDs on the wrong block. And he, in fact, shot the kid in the head and killed him. 15-year-old shot a 16-year-old at the behest of my client, who was supposedly a gang member. Then my client ran away, was found on America's Most Wanted, by America's Most Wanted, finally was arrested. And Rashawn got 14 to life for what he did. It was a split-second case where it was a robbery, in, pro- in progress, and for whatever reason, there was a struggle, and, and Rashawn stabbed the girl. It's horrible. But he didn't go out that night to try to kill somebody. I mean, it's a small solace, but it's suggesting some type of mens rea where his intent was. Anyway, back to the gang member who was arrested and then fled, finally was captured. He received 12 years in prison as an adult. Black-on-black crime equally as horrific. He enlisted. I think it's actually worse because he's an adult and he enlisted a child to kill another child. What could be a worse crime than that? Didn't end up on the front page. Didn't end up on the first 10 pages. Nobody really cared. And that's just how society is. And very quietly, he received a 12-year sentence. Has to do 10. Rashawn has to do 14. And he was a child. You can't compare the two. I have another case with a doctor who was uh, giving OxyContin to gang members, giving them prescriptions that they could get the pills and sell them on the street and, you know, addicting people. What ended up happening? A few people died. They overdosed from these drugs, from these overprescribing. And my client was accused of doing it for money. He was in his 60s. He was an adult. He was a very practiced, experienced doctor. And he killed people. He was convicted of manslaughter. He knew better. He knew the people would get addicted to these drugs, right? He got seven years. You know, again, these are people that know better, that should have known better. And the same office, seven years for one, 12 for the other, for that horrible gang crime. And Rashawn Weaver, again, the crime is horrific. I'm not suggesting for a second that it doesn't deserve any punishment. But come on, give me a break. It's too much. It's crazy. It's too much. It's not what civilized people do. Again, we don't live in Iran. So that was a frustrating week for me. I just felt that there should have been more notice about the fact that a child should not be getting a sentence with life at the end. And that I would have hoped that somebody in the press, somebody would have noticed the fact that we're all much too upset when it's black on white crime than it is black on black crime. And it's as clear as a bell to me, but this is how it is. Now, we have to go a little bit into some more current events. And, you know, there really wasn't much that I can remember from this week other than my own case. But President Biden's press conference, which was nothing short 
of a clusterfuck of monumental proportions, I suppose. And after he had the press conference, which was like the longest press conference ever, and that's, of course, what the Democrats touted, how wonderfully long it was, how long it was. Well, it's a very long press conference, and it takes you 15 fucking minutes to answer a question because you're so addled in the brain. That's part of the the problem. He's rambling, you know, like a dementia patient, which in essence is what Biden is. But the press conference was so bad on so many levels that even the Democrats are starting to turn on him. His uh, approval ratings are horrific. 47% of, I think, Democrats even at this point believe that he's not right in the head. But some of the stuff that he said was absolutely shocking. And he tried to differentiate between a minor incursion by Russia into Ukraine as opposed to a full-blown invasion. Now, I have to say, if you're the country being invaded whether it's a minor incursion or a full-blown invasion, they're both the same. Okay, let's just be straight. They're both the same. If, if soldiers are coming into your country from another country and they're trying to kill you, that's an invasion. Biden, because he's so you know completely foggy in the brain, knows that he can't do anything to Putin because America isn't powerful enough, or at least he's not powerful enough. What's he going to do, invade Russia to respond to an invasion of the Ukraine? No, it's probably not realistic to think that, that America is going to do that. And, you know, frankly, I don't think that they should. I don't think we should. But by telling Putin that it's okay to have a minor invasion, I suppose, of the Ukraine is shocking. Ukraine is our ally. You know, how do you do that? How do you give that signal? It was, uh, it was sickening. And of course, the spin the next day that that sick fuck Jen Psaki it came on TV and said that any movement of military troops across the border into the Ukraine would qualify as an invasion meriting severe economic consequences for Russia. Notice always economic. And, you know, she was desperate to try to undo what Biden had done. Kamala Harris did the same thing. I mean, she basically took a break from cackling or watching people uh, quit that work for her to also try to support the, the right thing that Biden was supposed to say, namely that if Russia gets too aggressive and goes into the Ukraine, there's going to be swift consequences. But what are the consequences going to be when the president's already said that he's okay with a minor incursion into Russia. You know, you just can't have that. And look, this is no longer a Democrat or Republican issue. And I think that's, you can see that the Democrats, if you go on TV, for the most part, they're recognizing it and acknowledging that this is an utter disaster for the country. Of course, you've got some of the idiots that are willing to say anything to help out Biden. You've got that, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce her name. I've read it a thousand times. Uh, Yamachi Alcinder, Yamichi. I'm just going to call her Lou Alcinder. Okay. You know, the formerly uh, uh, was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was formerly Lou Alcinder. So I'm just going to call her Lou Alcinder. She tweeted, if you can believe, after this press conference that Biden made news, pushed back on critics, called out lies, took responsibility for mistakes he believes he made, expressed outrage at the GOP, talked foreign policy, and didn't lash out on reporters. I mean, it was utter lie. He didn't take any responsibility. He said that he overperformed. Actually, he actually said that he overperformed and that he didn't overpromise. Meanwhile, he said he was going to get rid of COVID. We have more deaths in 2021, 
even after the, after there's been a vaccine, we still have more deaths. So how could you possibly say that you overperformed? You blew the Afghanistan withdrawal, gave the country to the Taliban, gave them billions of dollars of our weapons. You left people over there. You didn't put a base down there. You dis- that was a disaster. You've got the highest inflation in 40 years, I believe. You know, we still have masks all over the place. And, you know, to getting back to Duke, and I don't mean to be so scattershot today, but I was thinking about this as I was sitting at the Duke game. There's 9,314 people crammed into a tiny space at Duke, just crammed in. And you have to wear masks. And there are mask police. While you're sitting there, they're walking around with signs, you know, mask on, mask on. You know, you don't pull that, that mask down or you don't know what they're going to do. Maybe take a cattle prod out and, and, and zap you with it. But they are very serious about keeping people safe. It's very important that we're safe. We must be safe. Everybody must be safe. You must care about your neighbor. You must care about your community. That mask needs to stay on. But the funny thing is that none of the players have masks on. Why is that? Why don't the players have masks on? They're certainly, you know, expending more energy than the people in the the crowd, the fans. They're spitting, they're huffing and puffing, they're yelling without masks on. This is a fiction. Why are we doing this? Why are we having such a fiction where the players are not required to wear masks and everybody else in the same room is? It's because we think it would be hard for the players to play with masks on. So we just pretend that they're not capable of, of, I suppose, whatever way COVID is transmitted If it's from speaking and particles coming out of your mouth, we're just going to forget. We're just going to suspend disbelief for a second and just pretend that they can't get anybody sick while everybody else has masks on. And if you look around, the masks are down by people's chins, their their noses aren't covered. Nobody's really, you know, wearing the mask carefully. But this is what we've done. This is what the left has done. It's all virtue signaling. We have masks and it doesn't really seem to make a difference because in places where there are no masks, people are not getting sicker any more than places where there's you know massive mask mandates. And I read a, a statistic that the CDC found that just 36 people in 2021, this was a study of a group of 1.228 million people who were fully vaccinated between December 20 and October of 21. Just 36 out of 1.228 million died because of COVID, and most of them had pre-existing conditions. So you've got almost nobody that died from COVID just because of COVID, almost no one. And now we know that the Omicron variant isn't nearly as bad as the Delta, which was the dominating strain during 2021, the deadly strain, as well as you know the initial COVID. Now you've got Omicron where it's 90% less likely that you're going to even end up in a hospital. And no one is dying from it. If you're vaccinated now, we learned that. So why is it that we're in a place at Duke where every, in order to get in, you have to show your vaccine card. So you can't even get in unless you're vaccinated. So everybody in there has like a 36 out of 1.228 million chance of dying. And that's only if you've got other illnesses. So the chances of you getting really, really sick in there, if you're vaccinated and everyone is, is almost nothing. 
And yet we all have to wear masks. Who are we protecting? We're protecting other people that also have a 36 and a 1.228 million chance of dying. It just doesn't make any sense. And if that's the case where we're all, you know, safe because we've been vaccinated, the fuck do we care if people aren't vaccinated? That's up to them. If you don't want to wear your seatbelt, if you want to drink and drive, you know, you may kill yourself. You're stupid if you do it. But people are making choices all the time. You eat too much sugar. You get fat. That's your choice. I don't know. The whole thing seems to be, I thought, utterly insane. It just uh, none of it really makes much sense to me. It's really just virtue signaling, period. And if we can get back to Biden, I'm sorry for that little detour. The over-promising or outperforming that he's talking about. I mean, the guy has been just an utter failure with everything. I mean, again... Every foreign policy decision has been a disaster. Iran is walking all over us. He's screaming at reporters uh, because they dared to ask him, you know, why are you calling people that oppose you with regarding to regarding your Voter Rights Act? And you're calling them Bull Connor and George Wallace. And he says, go back and read what I said. I mean, he said that. He's yelling at some reporter, just abusing some guy. And he doesn't remember. He called him, I think, Jefferson Davis. Anyway, it's hard to imagine that anybody actually believes that he's doing a good job. He's not doing a good job. Democrats know it. There's no way that this guy is going to last another three years. You know, what's next? Maybe Michelle Obama's going to run. Apparently, she's the most liked in the Democratic Party, which is comical because, of course, she's never held office. You know, being able to wag your finger and saying, you know, don't go there, that is that does not substitute for the gravitas needed to inhabit the White House. And also Eric Adams, the uh, mayor, new mayor of New York, you know, with all that swag, he's got the swag, he's got the swag, and he's going to basketball games and talking on TV, not wearing a mask, and he's sending kids that are six, year, six years old to class with masks on for six hours a day. He's got no problem doing that. He doesn't have to wear a mask because he doesn't want that big smile of his, that beautiful big smile of his to get covered by a mask. Like AOC, another leftist politician, and, and Adams is a leftist. She doesn't wear masks either. It's only for the little people like us, me and you. We don't wear them. We get thrown off, you know, get arrested if you try to not wear it on a plane. But Eric Adams, AOC, they don't wear it. Anyway, a cop gets killed last night. And what ends up happening, he's freaking out and he's imploring DC to help. I need help. We all have to do this together. We can't do, I can't do this myself. Suddenly, Mr. Swag can't handle, you know, the uh, lawlessness in New York. And he keeps talking about, you know, a cop and his cop past. He's a transit officer. You know, that, that's like, like a crossing guard. I mean, the idea that he was some kind of cop that, what? It's a transit officer. It's, it's just, look, it's more horseshit is what it is from politicians. They'll say anything, they'll do anything to get elected. Suddenly he needs help and he wants DC to stop the flow of guns into New York and because there are no gun manufacturers in New York, but they're all getting here. He doesn't mention, by the way, that the cop that was killed was killed with a Glock that had an illegal high-capacity magazine. In New York, you can only have magazines that hold the bullets, only a maximum of 10 so what ends up happening, all the law-abiding people like me are stuck with 10-round magazines, and all the criminals have ones, you know, 17, 18, and it allows them to get more 
shots off without having to change the magazine, which can take a couple of seconds. You know, when you're killing someone, you don't really want to have to make that delay. He doesn't mention, Adams, that the criminal that killed the cop had a high-capacity magazine. These laws are in place for law-abiding people. The criminals don't give a shit about the laws. They don't give a shit. So trying to stop the weapons from coming in, how about stop releasing the prisoners, the criminals from jail or not putting them in jail? That's what's happening in New York City right now. That's why it's happening all over the world in all of these leftist district attorney offices where they're coming into power and they're not punishing people. You don't punish the criminals. Don't be surprised when the criminals commit crimes. That's just how it is. Now, this is, again, a freewheeling episode, not our usually laser-focused episode, but we're going to talk about my first job as a lawyer after this quick break. And uh, I was thinking about it this weekend. I was talking to a friend of mine from law school who went to the game with me at Duke, and one of my sons was with me, and I told this story, and I thought it was an interesting story. And I figured, hey, if they had to sit through it, you have to sit through it too. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. back with Beyond the Legal Limit. This is Jeffrey Lickman. And the first job I ever had out of law school, now I was a third year at Duke. This is about, let me think how many years ago. Um, Carried the one, uh, 110 years ago when I graduated law school. Actually, it was 1990. And I did not want to work in a big firm. I wanted to work in a small firm because I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. And I wanted to learn how to do it right. I wanted to actually go to court I wanted to be taught on a one-by-one, you know, somebody who was the head of a firm who could teach me. And I didn't want to go to the big firms because I knew I'd just be wearing a double-breasted suit at the copy machine. And the reason I say this, I had a friend from college who worked on my floor when I was a young lawyer. He was in a big firm and I was in a small firm. And I would see him every day at the copy machine with his double-breasted suit on. He was very, very important. And he was making copies. That was the highlight of his legal career. So I wanted to actually learn. I wanted to be in a firm where I would not be buried at the bottom making copies. And I went to one large firm interview. I went to a bunch, but there was one in New York that I really wanted to work at because the head of the criminal section of that firm, he ended up now as actually a federal judge in the Southern District. Uh, He was a great lawyer, very well known. And I wrote my uh, letter, my cover letter to the firm. And when I interviewed at Duke, I said, you know, I want to work for uh, this lawyer, Jed Rakoff, who's again now a federal judge, had a great reputation. And as a judge, it, it couldn't be a better guy, just the best guy. So I was right, at least back then in 1989 or 90. And they flew me to New York for an interview because I was a good student. I was at a top law school. And I'm you know, going to be meeting with Jed. That's all I wanted to do was meet Jed Rakoff and work for him. And uh, they come out to tell me to, to take me into the interview. And they tell me, well, you know, Jed is not here today and you're going to have to meet with somebody else. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this is when they're supposed to be nice to me. You know, they don't really start abusing you until you accept the job and start working for them. But they're very nice to you up until the point you accept. And then they just they treat you like, you know, your, your cattle. So I remember thinking, well, this isn't a good sign. If I can't get an audience with Jed when they're kissing my ass, 
what's going to happen when they're hitting me over the head with a shovel? So that was the end of my desire to work in a large firm in New York because I recognized that it would just it would just slow me down. I wasn't looking to be a prosecutor. I didn't I didn't feel that it was appropriate to be a prosecutor and also one day want to be a defense lawyer because how could I one day be looking to put people in jail? And then, you know, the next day, suddenly I want to keep me out of jail. It's just hypocrisy. And I found that former prosecutors that are now defense lawyers, for the most part, suck. They're just, they just don't have the same dedication. They don't have the same drive. Their drive is for money. They're poor as prosecutors. And it's just about money. They don't have the same love for the work. It's all, you know, uh, figuring out ways to cut corners. They don't actually believe in what they're doing. So anyway, I end up writing a zillion letters out. And one lawyer in New York gives me a shot. His name is Michael Kennedy. And he was a, a, a really radical lawyer from California in the 60s, was involved in the Chicago 7 case and all sorts of, you know, really good leftist causes back when, when lefties were not, you know, psychopaths as they are today. And Michael was a brilliant guy, a brilliant lawyer, but an unusual dude. I worked there for two years, three months and 23 days. And I don't know that I ever had a real conversation with him. He just was very standoffish and not the most warm guy to people that worked for him. And that's okay. You know, it is what it is. Everybody's different as a boss. So uh, he let me come into his office, but he did not hire me. He said, I want to see what kind of work you can do. So I took an assignment and I just started working like 16 hours a day. I'm just sitting in an area next to the secretary. I didn't even have an office. And this is how different things were back then compared to how they are now. And just worked, 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 gave him my work product. I mean, he didn't give me a computer. I had to go home and type up my notes. I mean, it was ludicrous. And I worked there for like two weeks, working my ass off. I never like left for lunch. I had like a brown bag. I would never dare leave the office. I was afraid that if I left, uh, he wouldn't let me come back. And the way I got hired is he walked out. Again, my office was in the middle. It was like an open space in between his gargantuan office that was like the size of a city block. And his wife's office was on the other side. And she wasn't a lawyer. I don't exactly know what she did. Even till today, I don't know. Um, His wife's name was Eleonora. She was a socialite, in essence, a socialite. Her real name was Eleanor. She was from... Jersey City, Eleanor, I think her maiden name was, but married Michael and became a socialite, you know, whatever. But to her credit, she was not like an obnoxious person. She was actually very warm and very funny. And it was actually a pleasure to have around the office. So you'd, you'd expect it would be worse, a woman that changed her name to become a socialite, but she really was a delightful person. And when I think back of my time working uh, for Michael Kennedy, his wife was just a very funny a good person to have around. It really, it really did help. Even though later at one point she told me that I was as fungible as a styrofoam cup and actually had the styrofoam cup in her hand uh, uh, as the prop to show me that was my significance uh, to the law firm. Anyway, so Michael comes out of his office after two weeks and says to me, says to the secretary, Shirley, who was from South Africa. She was about a hundred years old. She had these eyebrows that she painted on every day, like uncle Leo from Seinfeld. And some days they seemed that they were painted on a little angrier than other days. Just a doddering old lady. And I suppose Kennedy just wanted to keep her around. And he just walks out of his office and, and mumbles to her, Shirley, put Jeff on the payroll for $500 a week. 
and I was, I could not have been happier. This was a different generation. This shows you the difference between young people today and then. $500 a, a week, I didn't care if it was 20 bucks. I didn't care. I just wanted that fucking job. And I was so happy. I remember I finally took a lunch outside of the office and went to a Kaplan's Delicatessen and, uh, you know, jammed the sandwich down my throat for three minutes. I allowed myself to be out. I worked every day of the week, including weekends, and I had to commute an hour and a half from New Jersey because I obviously couldn't afford an apartment in the city back then. And I would commute three hours a day and on the weekends, almost every weekend, I would come into the office as well because I wanted to get ahead. I realized I wasn't making any money. The only thing that I had there, the only chance I had to get ahead was to actually work hard and try to compress maybe two years of learning into one actual chronological year. So I'm making 500 bucks a week. And the day that he gave me the job was a Thursday. And when I got my first paycheck, I see that it's only got pay for one week. Forget the two weeks that I worked for him for free. I don't think I expected to get paid for that, but it was $500 minus whatever deductions. And I said to Shirley, I said, Shirley, well, what happened to the two days? You know, that was 40% of the week. And it's not very difficult to figure out what 40% of 500 is. I mean, I'm there for two out of five days. I'm getting paid $100 a day. Two out of five days, that was an extra 200. I should have made 700. And she said to me, and I, I, I just can't do her accent. It's too embarrassing. This high pitch, oh, I can't figure out uh, what, the, what percentage that would be. How much extra money? So she basically said to me that she was giving me 500 because she couldn't fucking figure out that it was 700 that I should have gotten. And let me tell you, when you don't have any money, $200 was like, that's like I could have lived on that for a fucking month. For a month, I could have lived on it. You know, that would have bought me like 600 bologna sandwiches. It would have bought me. So I wouldn't have to spend any money. I was making no money. So I worked there and Michael just had no, there was no guidance at all. Everything I did, I learned on my own. And that was frustrating. And one of the reasons why I left after two months, three months and 23 days. And while I'm there after, I don't know, a couple of months, somebody in the office, I don't, I don't think it was Michael because he, he mostly never spoke to me. Might've been, might've been the secretary or his wife asked me to walk his dog, go to his apartment. He lived in this you know, again, a palatial estate on Fifth Avenue, just this gigantic apartment. You walk inside and it was like a museum. I mean, like the couch is worth more than my car now. And it was funny in a way because when I told people this, everybody was like, oh God, how disgusting. He made you walk his dog. But I was so happy because I love animals. And I got to hang out with his dog. And it was like the best part of, you know, my time almost working there was hanging out with this dog. I didn't have my dog in the city. And what was better than walking not guilty, the poodle, around the block a couple of times? Yeah, he named the dog not guilty. That was such a easy name to remember. And if you're a dog, you have to hear not guilty, not guilty. You know, just some, some posing bullshit. Anyway, so I would walk not guilty. And um, I think I might have picked up dry cleaning a couple of times. But again, this is what it was back then. You did what you had to do and you kept your damn mouth shut and you worked. You didn't care because you wanted to keep the job. Then there was an older associate, one year older than me, Greg. Um, and Greg and I were the you know, beleaguered associates in the law firm. He asked us to 
take coats, hang up coats at a party that he was having, like one of these socialite parties on Fifth Avenue. And Greg and I were there. I was 26 years old. I think Greg was 27. And we actually said yes. And we were there while all these socialites in their gowns were walking into the apartment, throwing their coats on top of our heads, were hanging them up. And Greg, it was a very funny night. Greg was convinced that he could hit on every daughter of these wrinkly old socialites and somehow he'd be able to charm them. And I'm like, dude, we're the fucking hired help, okay? We're like the back of the bus. These girls are looking at us like we're like 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 the gum on the bottom of their shoes. You think they, they don't know that we're lawyers? They don't care that we're lawyers. They want rich people, and rich people are not hanging up the, the fucking coats. So needless to say, the end of the night, n- none of the uh, young women even like looked at us. Eleonora, and, I, and I, it's, again, I, I, it's hard for me to say Eleonora instead of Eleanor, but I'm going to say it out of respect because I'm all about respect. She comes down and handed us each a plate of food. Like we were, we were literally the hired help and she's given us food at the end of the night. I mean, we didn't get to eat during the party, of course, because you do not want the, the, uh, the coat men to be seen eating. They need to be hanging up the coats. And you know, I can't tell you how many coats, I'm not good at hanging stuff up. I can't tell you how many coats hit the ground. Many, many did that night. So then it was like a couple of months later, Michael calls me into his office. For some reason, I guess he felt that I was more willing and he has a look on his face of just utter, you know, exhaustion. And he looked like he had just gotten slapped around. And, and this was a tough guy. I mean, this was this was a fighter. This guy was a, a tough Irish dude, a real brawler. But he was soft for his wife. I mean, to his credit, he loved her greatly. And she was very dedicated to him. But she occasionally mopped the floor with him, as, as I remember, which was shocking to me. Because, again, he was a strong guy. And he looks at me and says, you know, we're having a party at our house in the Hamptons. Now, he lived on a, on a gigantic house in Wainscott on the ocean. I mean, I don't know, the house, tens of millions of dollars it's worth now. Just incredible. And there was like a, a, a stretch of land next to the house that he owned as well, a plot. It was just like a buffer between his house and the house next door. He bought the house and the property in the 70s when it was very cheap. And again, he was socialite. He was friends with all these famous people in New York. And we, we represented Ivana Trump in her divorce from Donald back then. That's a story for another day. And he says, I'm having this party at my house. And I'm thinking, my God, I'm going to actually get invited to this party. And he says, Christy Brinkley and and Billy Joel are going to be there. And I'm getting all excited. I'm finally going to rate. I'm going to be a human being. And uh, can you park the cars? (laughs) He actually asked me to park the cars. Now, I would have done it. I would have done it. But for the fact, it wasn't my pride that you know, made me have this look in my face that made him say, you know, she made me ask you. And I said, no. And he was completely fine with it. The reason I didn't want to do it, the truth was, I knew that I was going to smash cars. It's not so easy to park cars. You know, it's not like parking your own car. You know, go to any parking lot. It it takes an art. You got to back them up. You got to put them an inch away from each other. You got to be able to get them out. I mean, that's that's a fucking art, man. You can't just park 40 or 50 cars. I'd have them like along the, the side of the road. Every, everybody's car would have gotten smashed, and I could just see it quickly in my head that he hires me to, to park the cars, and I just destroy $3 million worth of cars. Anyway, that was my role in the law firm. In terms of like the legal work that I did, I had some great cases that I worked on 
we had um, these two brothers that had a pornography empire, the Mitchell brothers. They did the movie Behind the Green Door, which is a famous porn, porno from the 70s. And they had some um, theaters, pornography, you know, the stripper theaters in California. Anyway, one of them killed the other one um, with a gun, shot him. And Michael represented the one that obviously survived. And uh, the trial was in California. Michael ended up getting a great result, got like a, a, a manslaughter conviction. I think Jim Mitchell only did a few years in jail. It was a wonderful result. But I was tasked with writing the motion to keep the cameras out of the courtroom. Court TV had just started. It was big. And they made an application to televise the trial. And we were afraid that if you had porn stars that were going to have the opportunity to perform on TV in front of a national audience, you know, while they were testifying, they may be more willing to stretch the truth and make themselves appear more significant in the story and could lie. So I'm working feverishly on this case, on this motion. And I remember while I'm working on it, Eleonora walks into my office and it was around Christmas time. And she says, listen, everybody in the office has to get something for the party. And I'm like, what? I'm like, work. I'm like, I'm working here, lady. And she's like, you know, you've got to go out and get the festive plates, the festive plates. There must be festive plates for the Christmas party. So you got to understand, I am from New Jersey. I don't know what the fuck festive plates look like. I, I, you know, I'm from New Jersey. I grew up eating on paper plates. And I'm still, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I'm no different. I'm no different. I'm exactly what I was back then is what I am now. So I'm like, seriously, I got to get this motion done. It's due, like, in, you know, a few days. Just go out. You've got to get the festive plates and make sure they're festive. So, you know, where am I going to go to get festive plates? In Manhattan, it's not like I'm going to go buy China. I've got to buy like, you know, plates that can be thrown out. You know, it's a it's an office party. It wasn't on Tavern on the Green. So, of course, I made the maximum effort that I would usually make in something like this. I went to one store. I went to the Dwayne Reed that was connected to our building. I walk inside looking for festive plates. It's around Christmas time. I figure I got a shot. There are no festive plates. There are three choices in the entire place. White plates, you know, those just those white plates that you see at any uh, picnic. And there were these pink and baby blue plates. Now, looking back, I suppose these plates, I should have known that these plates were for, uh, you know, a baby shower or something like that. I didn't know. I mean, I just, I just grabbed them. To me, pink and blue, fuck you, they're festive. And uh, I came back and I went back into my office. I threw the plates in the kitchen, went back to my office, continued to do the work. She comes into my office, Eleonora, and she says, what were you thinking? And I'm like, well, excuse me? She said, these are not festive plates. These plates won't do at all. I said, well, they're colored. She said, you know, they're, they're baby colors. They're not Christmas colors. They're not festive. We can't use these plates. So I just looked at her. She looked at me and she just you know, in a, in a huff or hair, I can still see the hairspray flying out of her hair. She uh, flung it around and walked out of the office. She didn't even trust me to get plates at that point. And, um, and it ended up, we had festive plates at the party and my pink and blue plates were used in the office over like the next year. Anybody needed a plate, you grab one of those plates. Anyway, we ended up winning that motion. We kept the cameras out of the courtroom. And I remember Eleonora was the one that told me back then there was not an internet. This is 1991, 92. And we would get a call from the court. You'd get a letter. You know, there, there was not even email back then really that was used. She comes back and tells me that we won 
And this was the styrofoam cup story. She's got some coffee, I guess, in it, and she just finished it. And she could see the glee in my face. And uh, she says to me, hey, relax, you're fungible here. She holds up the styrofoam cup. She goes, this is your significance in this law firm. She was kind of joking, but not really. You know, that's how first-year lawyers were thought of back then. You know, we were just, uh, we were slaves, which was okay for me because nobody else gave me a chance but Michael Kennedy. And I'm forever grateful, even though I was treated like swine. <clears throat> Another quick story, if I, if I may. Well, I've got a few more minutes left. I was making that $500 a week at the beginning. And he said to me, I'm going to make it 600 a week when you pass the bar. Now, I had taken the bar. I started working for him in October of 1990. I had taken the bar in July of 1990. So I didn't realize that $100 a week was, you know, hanging in the balance when I studied for that bar. If I would have known, I would have worked a lot harder on the bar. So I'm sweating onions waiting to find out if I passed. And finally, around Thanksgiving, I find out that I passed the bar. And I have got to get in a huge amount of paperwork to get this thing in so I can actually get sworn in. Because when I went to Michael and said that I passed the bar, he said, no, 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 no. You've got to get sworn in because I can't use you in court until you're officially a member of the bar. And just because passing the bar exam doesn't get you in, you've got to get letters of recommendation. You've got to fill out these papers. You've got to get your fingerprints. I got to do a, a criminal background search. And I'm you know, handing out to everybody that I ever worked for in summer jobs, letters, blank letters of recommendation they had to fill out. I'm calling them like an hour after I gave it to them. Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? Because I had to get that shit in, had to get it in so I could get sworn in. And I did it really quick. I was so fast because I was so desperate for that extra hundred bucks a week. When you're poor and you don't have any money, a hundred bucks a week was 20% more than what I was making. And I was taking like, you know, 17, you know, I was like basically saying I had like 17 children to try to max out the amount of, uh, of uh, money that I could get each week. You know, if you said you had, you know, one uh, exemption, whatever it's called, I had like 17, anything I could to get as much money as possible. I figured I'd pay back the taxes at the end of the year. I figured out then. So I rushed to get my paperwork done and I'm in a small group. We finally get called in, uh, 20 of us to get sworn in one day. And it was a real ceremony. And um, it was like the second class of that year. It was January 7th of 1991 that I got sworn in. These were people that really worked hard to get their paperwork in. And of course, John Kennedy Jr. Now he didn't do shit to get his paperwork in because he was so dumb. It took him, I think he failed the bar three times. You know that he wasn't hustling like I was to get the paperwork in. Somebody obviously, some slave obviously did the work for him. He was in the group with me. We got sworn in together. And Jackie and Caroline were there in the audience, and they watched the entire thing as well. And we all got sworn in together. And all I remember is looking at John Kennedy, who was ahead of me in line, one ahead of me because it was alphabetical. This was like the best-looking guy I've ever seen in my life. And this is, you know, this is not – there's no gay here. This guy was so good-looking that I was like, holy shit, that's a good-looking guy. That's what I remember from that day. Anyway, back to Michael Kennedy, now making $600 a week. And finally, I screw up the nerve after a year or so to ask him for a raise. I mean, I remember for my Christmas bonus, I, I got a belt. I got a belt. I got a belt. I really needed money because I was poor. I was living at home. So I screwed up the courage, and I went into his office. I asked him if I could speak to him. And you never called him Mike. His name was Michael. 
And I said, Michael, can I speak to you? Uh, here's the deal. I'm commuting an hour and a half a day, twice a day, and I'm losing three hours a day that I could be using for work by commuting. I said, if I could afford an apartment in the city, I would you know, live here and I'd be able to do so much more work for you. Well, that was a pretty good rationale. He listened and he says, you know, that makes sense. As soon as you find an apartment, let me know and I'll give you a raise. Now, this is a guy that made millions of dollars a year. And what I guess he figured how tough it was for somebody making 600 bucks a week to be able to afford an apartment. It wouldn't be so easy. I found an apartment, the second apartment I looked at, like the next day. Now, there's only one problem with the apartment. It was in a doorman building and it was a very small one bedroom, one bathroom. But, you know, not being a studio was amazing. I was thrilled by it. I walk into the apartment and there, it's very dark. There are heavy curtains over the window. I see a portable bed, like a hospital bed in the middle of the living room. I see a portable toilet in the living room. I see a walker in the living room and it just smelled like, can you guess? It smelled like death. The only person that was missing was the person who had just died in the apartment. So I was, I'm a little concerned about karma sometimes. And I said to the broker, I said, whoa, whoa. I said, did somebody just die here? No, no, no. And I never questioned. Of course, somebody died there. Where, where do you go after a portable toilet, a portable bed, a walker? You go into the fucking ground. But I didn't care. Just slap on some paint, get me in the apartment. So I wrote out a check. I, I literally wrote out 1033 was the rent. It was the first month and it was security. I had $1,000 left to my name. And I go, now I'm living in the city. Now I'm big timing. I've got a, a lease. I go back to see Michael and I said, you know, I've got a lease. I just signed it. Can I get that raise now? He says, well, you know, I thought about it. I can't really afford it now. You know, why don't we wait until after the beginning of the new year? And I'm like, what the fuck? How, how am I going to, what? I'm making 1033 a week. That's like $4,100 a month. I'm bringing home like, I don't know. 2,500 of it. I'm giving a thousand of it back to rent. I've got cable. I've got power. I've got phone. You know, back then you had a phone bill. You had a hard line. I had to actually eat. I had to buy food. I never went out and it was brutal for months. I would see how long it would take me. I'd go to the ATMs. You know, when you go to an ATM, how much money you take out? I would take out 20, one single 20. And if I was really feeling, you know, feeling good, I'd take out 40 bucks and I'd make like 40 bucks last, you know, sometimes two weeks. I wouldn't eat three meals a day. That's for sure, for sure. But I was poor. So finally, at, after the beginning of the year, after four months like this, he gave me a raise and I went from $30,000 a year. That was my $600 a week. And I made 36,000. So I got a 6,000, I got a, a $6,000 raise over 52 weeks. That was about, $110, $15 a week more. That's what I made. Needless to say, once I figured out that I was actually a rarity among um, young lawyers, namely that I was willing to work hard and not be a, a lazy uh, bum, I you know, took my talents elsewhere and went to Jerry Shargell. And that's, I think, an interesting story um, to see how it was back then as a young lawyer. And I don't, I never had any resentment for Michael Kennedy because, you know, although he was, you know, incredibly cheap with me, and I would never have done that to a young associate because you don't want to starve them. You'd rather pay them $100 more a week than what perhaps they want and $100 less. Because if it's $100 less, they want to, like, they're, they're having fantasies of murdering you. For $100 more a week, you know, they'll walk through a wall for you. 
But for me, I was thrilled at the opportunity. He gave me my first opportunity and he taught me some things. Namely, uh, you don't take shit from anyone. And uh, if you have any kind of revenge fantasies, you take them. And I'm going to tell you one more quick story was when we were doing the Gotti appeal. Um, we did, we represented Frank Lacasio and Michael Tiger and was involved at the University of Texas. He represented uh, Gotti and Frank Lacasio with us. Charles Ogletree from Harvard represented Gotti. I mean, it was really a wonderful bunch of lawyers. And they all convened on Kennedy's office one day of a discussion uh, right when Gotti was sentenced. And uh, Bill Kunstler was there, the famous, famous, famous civil rights icon as a lawyer and just the most wonderful guy. He was so nice to me. He was so kind to me. And this guy was, you know, world famous back then. Such a wonderful guy, you know, took pity on a, a young kid like me. Tony Cardinale from Boston was there. I remember he said during the meeting, you know, if I have to say that I was drunk during the trial, because he was one of the lawyers, one of the trial lawyers, if I have to say that I was drunk during the trial, I'll say it, anything to help these guys get out. I couldn't believe the shit that I was hearing. And Kennedy, for some reason, just hated Al Krieger. He's dead now. Or I don't know that he would I'd say, hey, but he didn't like him. He thought he was uh, full of shit. So he says, uh, he goes, watch this at the meeting. He says, I'm going to steer Krieger. I've got a chair that's that's broken at the table. So uh, everybody walks into the office and he steers Al Krieger to the broken chair. And it's an elegant chair. The chair, again, is probably like a $10,000 chair. Krieger sits in the chair. It just collapses, this wooden chair. He's on his back. He quickly gets up, grabs two pieces of it hands him to Kennedy and says, Mike, put this in the box. I'll take it. <laughs> and I remember that back then. Uh, it was uh, you know, a wonderful time as a young lawyer when I was so terrified of losing my job. I was so terrified of being a failure that I was willing to work 24 hours a day if I had to, anything to get ahead, anything to learn what I had to, to get ahead. Uh, that's what you did back then. Different generation. Now, all they want to do, all the young kids want to do is uh, go on Instagram and lie about their accomplishments. Anything that I've ever done as a lawyer, you know, the young associates will say that they did it, even though uh, they were, you know, 60 miles from the courtroom. That's just how it is. Nobody wants to work hard. Different world today, which is why, you know, the older lawyers are, are better and smarter. Not that I'm the older one, yet I'm still young. Jeffrey Lickman for Behind the Legal Limit. I went over a little longer than I wanted to today. I appreciate everybody sticking with the story as long as uh, as they as they could. If you want to listen to me, you can go to beyondthelegallimit.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Give me some positive reviews and if you hated it, you know, feel free to email me, but don't threaten my life and, you know, don't uh, wish me to hang from a tree. I really would appreciate it.